Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. President's Day. Here we are. Thank you so much for joining been looking forward to this all day uh, because it's otherwise been kind of quiet here in New York City. The stock markets, I think the stock markets closed today, right? A lot of stuff's closed today. It's the holiday. So. But I'm not on holiday. I'm here with you. Thank you for hanging out. we got some major stuff to get into today, including uh, continued fallout from the uh, Russia collusion indictments on, well, they, there was no collusion. What do we even call them? The Russian troll indictments. There we go. The Russian troll indictments on Friday, we've got a lot more on that, and then uh, the continued calls for gun control, and now the left going once again to what they've done in the past, which is to use uh, children and victims and victims as shields against criticism to push for policy agenda items. We will get into that over the course of the show, and in the third hour, I'm just going to kind of tell you about whatever's whatever comes to mind. We'll have a bunch of things to discuss then. But in the meantime, let's get right. In. I, I want to start with some of the Russia, Facebook trolling, all that to begin with, and then we can get into the gun control discussion. Also, because it's uh, holiday, lines are wide open. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. If you want to call in, it'd be great to hear from you. So here's where we are on this. Uh, you had some people who figured. Now is the time. Now that we've got 13, and 13 individuals indicted and some organizations that they're tied to indicted for uh, interference in the election, now's the time to just go completely and utterly insane on this stuff and say things like, in a Washington Post editorial, this was, this. remember, we're talking about uh, Facebook ads and some Twitter trolls. Washington Post editorial by a former conservative. I, I don't know what we would uh, consider him to be now. That this was the worst attack on America since 9-11. The worst attack on America since 9-11. Now, to even speak of uh, some guys setting up Facebook accounts and, and Twitter profiles, to say things like, you know, MAGA vote Trump and also vote Bernie Sanders and, you know, Hillary for prisoner, all, all this things that were already out there. The only way this was going to work, they thought, was if and I read all the different articles on the troll factories over the weekend, all the reporting on it. The only way it was going to work is if it fit in with what was already out there. Right. And then they would add into it. And this is classic. This is the way disinformation and propaganda from from the earliest days of the Soviet Union all the way through. This is the way that it would work. You need to have some true information for external audiences. For internal audiences, the Soviet Union, no lie was too blatant, too obvious, and too stupid, right? Because it was just brute force. You didn't have to believe it. They didn't care. You said you believed it because otherwise you were dead. 
But for external propaganda, whether it was the NKVD, the K, uh, NKVD, the KGB, the various Russian intelligence operations over the years, it, that meant that there had to be some believability to it. And they've been doing it for decades, as I've said to you. And Russia today, you could argue, which has had U.S. policymakers on and has had lots of people I know, lots of analysts and pundits in Russia today, way more influence than anything that was done in this election campaign cycle. And as you know, on top of that, the effort quite clearly was not just to help Trump. It was to help Bernie. It was to... Uh, create chaos and and dissension among Americans. And in that regard, it is a true statement to say that the Democrat Party, the Mueller probe, all of this is doing exactly what Vladimir Putin would have wanted them to do. They are doing Putin's work, right? I know people try to stay away from this this formulation because it, it gets abused a lot, right? You know, with, with the Iran nuclear deal, the Obama administration, oh, you know, you're doing the work of the hawks. You're doing the work of those who want to who want a war with Iran. It's like, no, I'm just trying to figure out how dumb your policy is. But in this case, if we can believe the information we have, what Putin wanted was not necessarily Trump to beat Hillary. It was just for us to be bickering and arguing with each other in ways that lacked civility and cre- and, and created a real environment of vitriol, nastiness, and distrust. And I think we've got that. I think we're there. I think we're certainly there. Uh, but I have problems with the indictments on, on numerous levels, or really the, the narratives that come out of the indictments. First of all, the, the idea that Mueller is essentially charging Russia, the Russian state, with, acts of, uh, with an act of war based on this is it's kind of breathtaking. It's like, oh, really? Okay. This is not, this is not something that a federal prosecutor is is the tool or the authority for this is something to be handled by the pentagon by the intelligence agencies this is really not for Mueller to try and counteract on his own it's just not going to happen these russians are not going to face trial these russians are not going to stop what they're doing they're actually laughing at the whole situation and that we are calling it though an active war also has other ramifications like what about any u.s influence operations overt or otherwise in other countries that even if not explicitly supporting one political candidate or another affect their political process what do we do when we start seeing you know uh, americans whether with the government say so or not who are trying to influence the outcome of a foreign country's election in one way or another we're going to hand them over for violating the, that country's election laws remember identity theft you know, wire fraud, I get those are crimes and those were in the Mueller indictment, too. But uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States government with Facebook accounts and Twitter, that, that seems like a stretch to me. Seems like a stretch. And it also sets a precedent that we have to be quite aware of, which is now U.S. citizens are subject to the election laws of whatever country anywhere in the world. <laughs> so that that's another thing that you just I think we should keep in mind. We can, people can argue with me on that, and that's all fine. If you really think that this uh, constitutes, if you think that it's wise to say that to, for a federal prosecutor to openly say that this was a this was information warfare against the United States, 
treat it like it's new, because none of this is really new, just the technology is new, and treat it like it's much more powerful this time than it was in the past. It's fine to think that, but I just don't think it is based in reality. Uh, but then you get into the the real weak point of the whole uh, Russian troll operation, which is just impact, scale, effectiveness. What was this thing really all about when we look at whether it worked or not? Did, did, did it actually have anything that is, um, you know, anything that we need to look at and say, oh, wow, maybe it did change some things. Maybe this is a real problem. And I, I, had, uh, I had some very irate and not bright people, which is fine. I saw occasionally hear from dumb people on Facebook or, or email. Uh, but I had some people say, oh, you think that this is, you're comparing things and not realizing this is a million, do- they're spending millions of dollars on these ads. Let's put this into some perspective. Okay? We'll start with this. The VP of ads at Facebook shared the following. His name is Rob Goldman. He shared this over the weekend. Just keep this in mind. Quote, very excited to see the Mueller indictment today. We shared Russian ads with Congress, Mueller, and the American people to help the public understand how the Russians abused our system. Still, There are several key facts about Russian actions that are not well understood. Most of the coverage of Russian meddling involves their attempts to affect the outcome of a 2016 election. I have seen all of the Russian ads, and I can say very definitively that swaying the election was not, in all caps, the main goal. The majority of the Russian ad spend happened after the election. Oh, it gets better, folks. This is Remember, this is the guy at Facebook in charge of ads. So I, I think he probably knows what he's talking about. Quote, The Russian ad spend happened after the election. We shared that fact, but very few outlets have covered it because it doesn't align with the main media narrative of Trump and the election. The main goal of the Russian propaganda and misinformation effort is to divide by using our institutions like free speech and social media against us. It has stoked fear and hatred among Americans. It is working incredibly well. We are quite divided as a nation. End quote. Okay, so guy at Facebook in charge of ads telling the American people in no uncertain terms that the election was not even the main effort. That most of the ad buying occurred after the 2016 election. How many of you have heard that on CNN? Just, just wondering. How many? And you're like Buck. I don't watch CNN, but how many of you have seen that on the ABC, NBC, CBS, any of the major networks? Those stories. And how much real attention are those facts getting? Because that would seem to be quite important, wouldn't? Wouldn't it? If it were all about helping Trump, then wouldn't they have spent more money before the election? And what was with all the other stuff that they were focused on that had nothing to do with Trump? Why are they trying to promote Bernie Sanders? And then you get into... So that, that's one component of the putting this into context and not freaking out about this. But then you look at this other note, and this courtesy of Byron York from The Examiner. Total, uh, the total Russian Facebook ad buy was $100,000, folks. 100 Gs, Okay. The 
total election spending was $2.4 billion. If you were to actually add up, though, all of the airtime spent on our election that wasn't paid for, but you just you added that into what the cost of coverage of the election is, how much media time in and dollars went into the 2016 election, it would be billions more than that. So you can sit there and do a quick run in your head of the math. So a hundred grand, two point four billion dollars spent. Uh, this is a drop in the ocean. It's not even a drop in the bucket. And the media is calling. You've got people writing. The Washington Post is running an editorial. And always, by the way, don't let them get away with this. Oh, it's just someone else's opinion, man. They turn down editorials all the time. When they run an editorial, they are at least saying that this this deserves to be read. They're not saying they necessarily agree with it, but in this case, they clearly do agree with it. They're calling this Mickey Mouse trolling operation the biggest attack since 9-11. Bigger than the Pulse nightclub shooting, bigger than the San Bernardino attack, bigger than, I mean, you know, I, I could go on, on. Bigger than mass casualty terror attacks on U.S. soil. B- bigger than all that. This trolling operation. These people are appalling morons. And I understand that people don't like to be wrong. They, they, it's, I don't like to be wrong. I get it. I can sympathize with that. But there's going to have to be some hard days ahead for the folks who really believe that Donald Trump was, or any of his top people were involved in this Russian trolling operation. It's fanciful. It's crazy. It makes no sense. And you have vast multi-billion dollar media entities that have been running with this thing like they discovered the meaning of life. They are an embarrassment. One of the problems that they have with the way that they've with the way that they're covering this whole collusion narrative is that they're so angry about Russian efforts to influence the election. But a lot of us sit around saying we feel like the media is basically state propaganda for the Democrat Party. So we're not all sitting around as, as, as outraged as they are about this, because, you know, for eight years, you essentially had a White House that could count on a, a, quote, objective media. But that was for all intents and purposes, state media. So we just have a different perspective on all this. Perspective based on experience and reality. Uh, but there's more. There's there's more that I want to talk about this Russian stuff, because it was it was a trip to crazy town over the weekend with all the stuff that people were saying about this. And of course, there's no collusion. We'll talk. We got to talk about the collusion component of this, which does not exist. When will they ever give that up? The answer is never, because they're being dishonest about the whole investigation. We have much, much more. I'll be back. Says this in the indictment. This is the other part that is new. That it was done for the express purpose of helping Donald Trump and disparaging Hillary Clinton. There is no doubt now who they wanted to win and who they wanted to lose. We focused on the places we thought were uh, that were, you know, in contest. And and, uh, at the end of the day, we fell short in those states. Uh, And I think that this active measures uh, effort by the Russians uh, could have tilted the election. In, uh, in Donald Trump's favor. Hey, uh, Podesta, no surprise. He thinks that the face, the, the, the hundred grand spent on Facebook may have tilted the election in Donald Trump's favor. The Russians would have to be political and messaging geniuses, the likes of which the world has never known, 
to be able to tilt the election with spending $100,000 on Facebook. And as, as we pointed out here, most of the money wasn't even about the election. So people are saying, oh, they, they wanted Trump to win. No, they just wanted to pit the American people against each other and run a lot of inflammatory stories. This is all classic out of the KGB playbook. You know, KGB is all about, you know, the CIA created AIDS or the, you know, they, they make up all kinds of nonsense stuff. So maybe they've gotten a little bit better because they're a little more believable now. But, you know, you, you see the the continuous threat is that the Russian government feels like it is better to push stories inside America that, you know, keep us in our place, keep us fighting, fighting and squabbling with each other and not unified on the world stage. Right. So I understand what the what the goal here is supposed to be. And I think anyone who's being honest does as well. And yet here we are being told that maybe it tilted the election. To me, it just strikes me as completely and utterly crazy. I, I just think it's crazy. Uh, I, I'm having a tough time even with much of the, But on the issue of collusion, I told you Friday that they would just say, well, it hasn't been proven yet. Sure enough. They were very clearly telling their people we want to help. Uh, Trump and we want to hurt Hillary Clinton. You've got this micro-targeting that was done by these Russians, right. Twitter, Facebook, to suppress the Clinton vote. It does call into question the legitimacy of this election. The entire Russian campaign that spent millions of dollars to take down Hillary Clinton. It doesn't matter what Trump says or doesn't say. The fact remains that Mueller's investigation is steadily closing in on his inner circle. That hasn't yet been proven, that there might have been collusion, but I think it's getting close. Yep, Senator Coons there at the end saying it hasn't been proven, but they're getting close. They're always going to be getting close, folks. As I've said to you, Mueller could shut down the entire thing tomorrow and be like, we, we have done everything. We have subpoenaed every record. We have looked at every witness. We have grilled everybody. We have been as thorough and as, as you know, tough as we possibly could in the course of this investigation. There was no collusion. I promise you, I promise you, if that were to happen or something close to that on MSNBC and CNN that night, they'd say, well, you know, it's just maybe Trump and his co-conspirators were just too effective at hiding their tracks. And it will just continue on. And in a few years, you'll see pundits going on TV or saying, well, Trump didn't even win the election. Russia helped him win it. He colluded with them. It was Trump's, you know, it was Trump that worked with them to do this. It, so we'll never be entirely free of this lie, which is really unfortunate. And the Democrats have actually taken a Russian propaganda campaign and made it many times, many orders of magnitude more effective than it would have otherwise been. That's the real upshot of all this. That's what's, actu- that's what's really happened here. Because they are so desperate to believe that the American people would have voted for Hillary, Hillary, instead... They have made sure that the the Russians actually got their money's worth with those, with those ads. And this is still the biggest single weight dragging down the Trump administration. But uh, we've got more on this, including why didn't they do more sooner if this was such a big deal? While I respect uh, the motive in terms of the Obama administration, they didn't want to be seen as meddling. They should have defended being more public and aggressive um, at the time. Look, Obama was in a very difficult position. He did not want to make it appear that he was favoring Hillary Clinton. Maybe he should have done more. Maybe he should have. Bernie Sanders, 
See, this is the problem they've got, folks, to those of us who pay attention to what they've said in the past and what the narrative has been. How could it be that, as some are saying now, the Russian trolling effort was the worst attack since 9-11, or even just a really terrible attack that requires a, a, a massive investigation? A, a bigger attack, for example, a more important attack than the things the Russians have done in the past with regard to harassing our diplomats, uh, the, the Russians we found in this country and had to expel who have been part of uh, deep cover efforts to infiltrate American society. I mean, you think about the things the Russians have done that we've seen in the past, and this is supposed to be the worst by far. It's the worst, the worst. Huh. Interesting. And yet, now you have these people who say, well, you know, maybe Obama should have done more. I need to know how this is possible. How is it that this was such a terrible, destabilizing, and democracy-threatening thing that the Russians did to us with this troll, with the troll factories? That still to this day, I, 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 don't know, I don't know anybody who's fooled by Russian trolls. And I would note that a troll that writes things like, you know, MAGA or lock her up is just another of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of tweets or Facebook posts saying exactly the same thing. So what what difference does it really make? What difference at this point does it make? No, but really, what difference is there? It's just try to apply some some context to all this and it starts to feel very, very different. But if it was such a big deal, how come Obama knew about it and didn't do anything about it? I saw some people saying, oh, Obama, Obama sanctioned some, you know, sanctioned the FSB and sanctioned these people and that people. And I'm like, yeah, after Hillary lost. Isn't that convenient? What a shock. All of Obama's tough guy anti-Russia stuff with regard to election meddling happened after Hillary lost. You see, a person who's being honest and looking at the way this happened would say, hold on, hmm, maybe, just maybe... Obama didn't want to be seen as trying to tip the scales in Hillary's favor by talking about Russian meddling that was pro-Trump pre-election and so hid that from the American people. But you see, that would be the commander in chief at the time, President Obama, making a political decision about a national security issue that was ongoing while he was commander in chief. You can't have it both ways. Either the attack is a big deal, it threatened the election, it threatens its integrity, and you have to do something about it, or it wasn't really that big of a deal. Obama knew it wasn't that big of a deal. It was kind of an annoyance that everybody figured, well, what's, you know, what are we going to do about this? We'll figure it out later. Let's just wait till after Hillary wins. They're trying to rewrite, folks, that, that part of history here because it doesn't add up. It does not add up. We were hearing about this Russian intrusion interference stuff for months, months before the election. This was all out there. And certainly the president knew all about it. We didn't hear about it, you know, as, as much as we could have. Sure. But that was a decision that was made. They made that decision, which makes me think that at one point they had perspective on this so, to some degree. At one point, Obama and, and Clapper and Brennan, all of them, 
We're sitting, and the DOJ folks, you know, uh, Comey and Yates and company, they're like, yeah, all right, this is bad, but I mean, it's more important that Hillary wins. And they don't get to they don't get to shift that narrative. They don't get to have it both ways. Um, they think they do, but we're paying attention. We see what they're trying. We see what they're up to, and it is disturbing. By the way, speaking about Clapper, here's a cla- here's a Clapperism for you. What is it we're going to do about the threat posed by the Russians? He, he never never talks about that. It's all about himself, collusion or not. And you know, I do think there are other shoes to drop here besides this uh, indictment. Never before have we seen uh, an effort like this mounted by the Russians with the, the um, multidimensional nature of it and its aggressiveness and directness. I mean, the, the Russian-sponsored newspapers in the United States, the Russians have been running disinformation campaigns for decades. Other countries run disinformation campaigns in this country. Other company, Other countries... Uh, buy access to lawmakers, the Glendon Foundation, and do all kinds of stuff. But they're going to make this seem like a much bigger deal. Another line of argument and discussion here that I think we need to we need to not lose sight of. How is it that we are going to be told now, and I, I really want you all to remember this because this is a good one. This is one you want to keep handy. We are supposed to take lectures from people who are hysterical about how terrible the Russian interference in the last election was. From people who also, for over a year now, have been telling us that there was collusion with this White House based on a foreign operative, Christopher Steele, working with Russian sources to run a disinformation campaign through the FBI and magnify it with the help of the pro-Hillary Democrat press. Which was the bigger and more successful disinformation effort, the dossier or the trolling? I think we all know the answer. Dossiers led to the Mueller probe. The dossiers led to over a year of just hysterical, bedwetting, crazy, left-wing nonsense on TV about the Russia collusion stuff. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? The trolling effort for anyone who understands social media ad buys and the Internet and how all the stuff works is a joke. It's laughable. The Russians did it because they could. The Russians did it because, you know, some of the senior Russia folks don't like America that much or don't like our policies. And they just wanted to, you know, kick some dirt in our face. But it's not a good idea when you're dealing with a nuclear power to act like getting a little dirt kicked at you is the same thing as somebody taking a swing at you with a baseball bat. It's not the same thing. And a lot of people in the media are pretending that it is. And it's not. And that's dangerous. You need to have a sense of scale here, and they have thrown that out because any sense of scale would automatically diminish the narrative they're trying to push, which is, sure enough, that the trolling effort changed the election, and Donald Trump worked with them as part of this collusion. Remind the fact that you're also hearing a lot of 
a lot of grandstanding right now about, oh, what are we going to do to secure the next election? Oh, what are we going to do? Well, they weren't able to hack into our systems the last time. They didn't change votes. At least everyone still agrees on that for now. Uh, the, the election systems are not actually even attached to the Internet, from what I understand. So, yeah, they got into some voter rolls or something. Who cares? There's been a lot more sensitive hacks of government data and massive privacy intrusions, Equifax and the Office of Personnel Management, and this, all that stuff in this country. China's been involved in some of it. North Korea's been involved in some of it. Russia's been involved in some of it. That's all way more important than anything we've seen with the election front. But they, you know that they'll just put, they'll push aside. They'll cast that aside. Yeah, that's not really a big deal. It's not really a problem. Oh, is that the case, my friends? They they want to have it so many different ways here. If you spend just a bit of time thinking about what they're really telling you, it just it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And, and I want to know when charges are going to be filed about uh, a, a foreigner involved with other foreigners directly in the election process, Christopher Steele, trying to change the outcome of a presidential election explicitly and openly and, and coming pretty darn close to doing it. Why is that OK? If if the you know, the Russians were more open about what they were doing it would be better I'm, I'm confused here because christopher Steele was operating in secrecy christopher Steele is not an american we keep saying oh you know russia is a a an enemy foreign power well the laws are about foreigns foreigners getting involved in here foreign stuff the laws do not say well you know it's it's illegal for russia to meddle but it's legal for like france to meddle no that's not what it says so if we've established this standard now of foreigners meddling in our election as a federal prosecutor issue, which Mueller has done, I want to know where are the charges against Christopher Steele. And I want someone to explain to me how there shouldn't be charges. If that is not, he is a foreigner. He was meddling in our election secretly and at a very high level and very explicitly. And on behalf of Hillary and only on behalf of Hillary. So what exactly am I, am I missing about that? And using Russians, using Russian information to do it. I, we're just supposed to ignore this, skip past this? I don't think so. All right, I know we, we've talked a bit about Russia, and I really want to get to the gun control issue because it's, it's been heating up over the last few days. I thought maybe it would have, we would have started to move on. But no, in fact, I think people are more dug in than ever. So we'll get into that. Uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we'll be right back. He does, and I don't anticipate that changing. It's clear that he has a massive inferiority complex about how he won this election. That's clear from all of his tweets, every public statement that he makes. And he's not fulfilling his job as president, to state the obvious. He's so focused on his own narcissism that we're pointing fingers, we're stuck in the postgame here of what Obama did or didn't do, rather than saying, okay, they meddled, what are we going to do now? We're under live attack, Wolf, and we're doing nothing about it. Yeah, let's just like skip past like the like what Obama did or didn't do part of this because like who cares about that right like that like doesn't matter so like whatever let's just skip past that part no I don't think I'm going to do that that's yet another one of the CNN's bringing on all these if if you were like a an assistant deputy assistant to whatever Democrat national security official under Obama now CNN just just bringing it one after another so they all have credibility here. Maybe they can have like Valerie Jarrett show up on TV and explain the intricacies of 
U.S. foreign policy to the country. That would be fun. That would be quite. A, that would be quite interesting. I think. By the way, and keep in mind that she probably had more more influence on the Obama administration than almost any other policy official. But you know that was the that was the administration for geniuses. Uh, but the the notion that we should skip past Obama's in inability or unwillingness rather to do anything about Russia intrusion is is preposterous, and it just shows you how dishonest they're being. And also now all this fear mongering about what we're going to do about the midterm election. Uh, I don't know. If there's some hacking, talk about the hacking on TV. Tell us what's going on. You know, show us some of the troll accounts. I guess maybe that doesn't matter. It's just amazing that they think that this is so it's so easy to influence the American public one way or the other from a foreign country. All right. I said calls. Let's get into some Cliff in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, Cliff. How are you doing? I'm good. Good deal. You're the uh, closest person to come to talk to uh, what I've been thinking for months. You know, this business of being all upset about Russia trying to influence our elections. Doesn't our CIA go into third world countries and try to decide who's going to be the next president who helped with coups and, and involved in elections? <laughs> it seems to me that that's what, exactly what our CIA would do. Um, there certainly are people who, you know, Cliff, you're making some, you're making some points, and I'm, I'm hearing what you're putting down. And the other thing is, what about President Obama openly sending uh, election teams to Israel to help defeat Netanyahu? Yeah, well, this is, you know, this is where you see, if, if trying to influence another country's election based on their election laws, by the way, is now an, an international crime. Uh, we better be prepared for some other countries that feel like our demo, you know, pro-democracy efforts or whatever that run afoul of whatever they think is going on. I, I guess we're going to start handing people over. Remember, this is for message. This is for quote information warfare, Cliff, which is a fancy way of saying propaganda, messaging, public relations. And aren't we all involved in that? Yeah, of course we are. That's why the this idea. is, I, from, when I saw this Mueller indictment, I was like, oh, gosh, finally, we're calling out the Russians for this. We're, we, we are, our president's calling Putin a thug, reg- not this one, but the previous one, called him a thug regularly on TV. We're influencing elections and influencing perception all the time. Everyone is. You can't gauge this stuff. It's crazy. Exactly. Yeah, I know. You're right and I'm right, Cliff. There we go. Thank you for calling in, buddy. Um, all right, let's get to, wow, everybody wants to... Uh, Everyone wants to talk gun. We're going to talk about the gun control thing coming up. I promise. I've got a, I've got a lot on that, and I'm very, very frustrated with what the the left is doing once again. Especially when I see that they're putting, you know, crying mothers on TV, crying kids on TV, using kids to call the NRA murderers, and this is one of the favorite tactics on the left. Just put forward a victim, have the victim become a an attack uh, vessel for ideas on the left. And then if anyone says, well, hold on a second, that's a bad idea. Oh, how could you look at the look at the terror in the person's eyes? It's like, well, that doesn't mean that their ideas are good, folks. It doesn't mean that what they're saying is right. It doesn't mean they have some special. But you'll, you'll notice that no one, no one of the media is going up to Steve Scalise saying, hey, what do you what do you think about gun control laws? I think he has a special right if anyone else does. Oh, no, you know, that that doesn't care. He doesn't count. That doesn't count. How about go up to the Freedom Caucus after a Bernie Sanders supporter tried to mass assassinate a bunch of them? 
Ask them what they think about gun control. Maybe they should have more of a say because they'd probably say, yeah, you know what? Bad gun control policies don't help anybody. But you'll notice they, they don't get the special treatment. It's only the anti, uh, anti-conservative, anti-Second Amendment line that will get the, oh, my gosh, let's hear from some victims. We'll get there, though. I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. That's coming up in the next hour. Tim in Biloxi, Mississippi. Hey, Tim. Hey, Buck. Thanks for taking the call. Thank you. Listen, I, I usually I try to stay in touch with pretty much everything that's going on. But could you have you read the indictment of the 13 Russians? Several you times. Yes. What the crime. What is the crime that they're charged with? Well, they're, they're charged with some kind of, you know, Mickey Mouse stuff about identity, identity theft and wire fraud. Uh, essentially setting up fake bank accounts in the U.S. and stealing people's identities to make it seem like they were Americans. Then on the other, but then the, the, the part of it where they get a little too creative for my taste is when they say that there's a, they're guilty of conspiracy to defraud the United States government of its uh, right to conduct an election or something like that, which, I, okay, I mean, I don't even know what that really is supposed to mean. And information warfare, I have never seen information warfare as a term used in a federal indictment ever before. And it was used in this well, one. You know, if that's if that's a crime, then I, I can't understand why they haven't indicted, I don't know, moveon.org, uh, for example. You know, the problem with disinformation is that it, at its core, for it to work, you have to have an uneducated, uninterested I know. And the American people actually know what's up. we got to run, Tim, into our next break. But stay with us for the next hour, everybody. We're going to talk about gun control. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show, everyone. Appreciate you being with me here on President's Day. Got a bunch of gun control news to discuss here. Um, It is, I, I suppose we should expect it at this point. Because it's what happened after Newtown, it's what's happened after some of these mass shootings at schools, where all of a sudden we are being presented with kids, teenagers, as the moral and policy authority on Second Amendment issues. And it's almost like CNN and MSNBC and others are goading us, you know, trying to tempt us into saying, What is so obvious, which is that these kids don't know anything about the Second Amendment. And also, just because they have been through a tragedy, it does not mean that they are, in fact, imbued with a a special policy scepter that allows them to determine what should be good for the rest of us. Never mind the fact that a lot of them aren't even old enough to vote. They'd say, oh, Buck, you're, you're trying to silence them. I'm not trying to silence them. It's just very obvious what's going on here. They're using kids as policy human shields and attack dogs. It's disgusting. It's disgraceful. And here is just a a small sampling of what I am uh, what I am talking about. We need to stop being corporation figures. We need to, like the government needs to understand and people in the government need to understand that we are not to be bought by the NRA. Like, they're not supposed to be listening to the NRA about our protection. They're supposed to be listening to the people who are getting hurt about our protection. And we're the ones who deserve to be kept safe because we were literally shot at. 
We want to have conversations with President Donald Trump, Senator Marco Rubio, and Governor Rick Scott about the fact that they are being supported by the NRA. And we want to give them the opportunity to be on the right side of this. There's a badge of shame on any politician who's, expect, who's accepting money from the NRA. The NRA is fostering and promoting this gun culture. We are not to be bought by the NRA. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, shame on you. The NRA, I think their great strength here has been how they've re-messaged gun ownership and they've wrapped it in the flag. Congress is deadlocked. And so the idea that they're going to do something here, and they're also to a certain extent owned by the NRA. Republicans are going to have to say that it's more important to protect the children of this country than to antagonize the NRA. Are they prepared to do that? But the NRA is no longer interested in protecting gun rights. They're interested in promoting gun sales. So much wrong and so so many lies in one one fell swoop, my friends. Oh, wait, that guy Scarborough paid a lot of money to be a fake conservative on, on MSNBC. Uh, he used to be very very pro NRA. Used to actually get a lot of money from the NRA when he was running for Congress. But that's beside the point. You had a whole slew of high schoolers from the the school affected in, in Parkland in Florida who were all attacking the NRA. Almost like adults told them that's what they should do. What do they really know about the NRA? What do they know about the Second Amendment? Are we allowed to to question that just maybe having a 16- or 17-year-old lecture the country on national policy isn't a wise course of action? Is that that going too far? Is that just uh, too much? And as if that weren't bad enough, it's not just the NRA that's being attacked by the students. Now, keep in mind, students, yeah, they can say whatever they want. They're being elevated to a national platform by the media. The students that attack the NRA, get on CNN. The students that attack Donald Trump, get on CBS. That's what's different here. And you don't hear the other side of it. Do we really think there's no student who's like, yeah, you know, I actually think that we should have more armed security on campus, but I don't believe that the, the answer here is to ban a gun or something. And I certainly don't believe the answer is to ban the NRA. I mean, I played that whole montage for you folks. It almost sounds like the NRA conducted this mass shooting based on this, right? The NRA, the NRA, it's all, oh, it's all about the NRA, which is just a, a, a gun rights organization of gun owners, not gun manufacturers, not gun sellers, just gun owners. And yet here we are. It gets worse. I mean, they they go right after Trump, too. Trump is the problem with the Parkland shooting, according to students that are getting national television platforms. President Trump, you control the House of Representatives, you control the Senate, and you control the executive. You haven't taken a single bill for mental health care or gun control and passed it. And that's pathetic. We've seen a government shutdown. We've seen tax reform, but nothing to save our children's lives. Are you kidding me? You think now is the time to focus on the past and not the future to prevent the death of thousands of other children? You sicken me. It's worse, too. There was actually an NRA... Clip. I don't think we have this one where somebody was yelling about child murderers. So the NRA is, you know, supporting, you know, the NRA is supporting child murder, basically, by supporting gun rights. I mean, they've, they've got hysteria. Do we have the hysteria? There was the hysterical screaming, crying student that was on there. Um, they put them on TV, and this is just a form of moral blackmail. 
This is just meant to make people feel bad about not agreeing with the, the screaming, crying teenagers who, look, have been traumatized. I get that. They deserve our support. They deserve the community to come to their aid. And they're allowed to say whatever they want. But the media to marinate and opportunistically marinate in and opportunistically elevate their agony just strikes me as heartless. These kids don't know anything about guns. They don't know anything about gun policy. Honestly, they don't, probably don't know anything about the Constitution either. There's a reason why we're not running around usually asking, you know, what do you think about the top? Let's ask a, let's ask a room full of 15-year-olds. What do you think about the top marginal tax rate? It does not change that there was a tragedy that some of them were uh, near or involved in. And for those who disagree with this, I remember there was, a, or, or want to swat away this notion, I promise you, you will not see a major news broadcast where they're just going to sit there one after another and ask all of the, uh, the, the, uh, NFL, the NFL players recently killed by an illegal, forget it, he played for the Colts? Colts, right? Um, the NFL player was killed by an illegal alien who was drunk driving. You know, they're not going to sit down with with the, that NFL player's family and Edwin Jackson and one after another just, you know, what, what do you think about immigration policy? They, they might have done interviews with the family, sure, but they're not going to sit there and say, you know, what do you think about immigration policy? Do you think maybe that we should be a little stricter on illegals and deporting illegals? They're definitely not going to do that and say, hey, you know, everybody listen to the family, the, the grieving family of this man who was killed because of an illegal alien. And his his thoughts on immigration should be held as more important than yours because of the tragedy that he suffered. They won't do that on immigration. They are doing that on the Second Amendment and on guns. And it's very transparent and it's really grotesque. And it's one of the places where the media just shows you how feckless, immoral, and gross they are. They are overwhelmingly, the press is overwhelmingly idiotic, ignorant on the subject of guns. And they don't even care to know. All they care to know is that they are on the, they are on the side of the good people. They don't really understand the issue. They don't understand guns. They just know they want to be at the cool kids table. And the cool kids want gun control. That they push policies that would do nothing or that would be counterproductive time and again doesn't matter to them. That they go on TV or write in ways that make them look buffoonish on the topic of guns doesn't matter. You're allowed to be wrong on guns in terms of the facts as long as you are right on guns in the media in terms of the morality involved, the virtue signaling. And that's what we see at work here. Uh, it's uh, it's troubling because it, it seemed like it got a lot. The, the gun control cries from the press got a lot louder after the the truly horrifying revelation that the FBI was was handed this whole thing and could have look the FBI could have prevented the FBI messed up. Bottom line, it's just that's just what happened. We could sit around and talk about whether it's fair or not to hold them to a standard of, you know, 100% accuracy or 100% prevention. But the FBI uh, messed up big time on this one. And local police 
Look, I understand they don't really have the tools to do all that much here. Based on the existing laws, I don't know what they were supposed to do. They kept visiting the house. But the FBI comes in. You've got interstate threats being made online. I mean, they, they can do something, you would think. Um, but nothing happened. I mean, law enforcement, see something, say something, as I talked to you about on Friday. That feels increasingly hollow because people see something and they say something and then nothing happens. So we have now the media presenting us with a a slew of traumatized children. And we are being lectured on national policy and they're saying really terrible stuff about the NRA, about Trump. It's unfair. It's unseemly. And it just goes to show you that there's not any interest in a constructive debate on this. If nothing else, what the what the Democrat Party and the media wants to take away from mass shootings what they want, the, what they want to, to get out of this is not a change in gun control policy. It's just to throw as much garbage as possible at the other side. Just to, just to slime them. Just throw crap at them. Anybody who defends the Second Amendment, anyone who believes in the right to bear arms, anyone who is an NRA member, just show them how much the left hates them. That's what they think this is really all about. That's what this turns into. And uh, like I said, it's it's just an absolute disgrace. I don't even know what I'm reading these articles from people that are supposed to be even handed and trying to and I just keep finding one after another. No, that's not which same of guns is not true. I mean, CBS Evening News put out a tweet right before I came on or CBS News, whatever, right before I came on air that it's easier to buy an AR-15. This is from their official account. It's easier to buy an AR-15 than to buy cough medicine in Florida. That is a lie. And anybody who reads that without even knowing anything about guns should probably think to themselves, um, no, there's no way that's. So how could a major news organization, one of the biggest in the country, write something so stupid? Like I said, doesn't matter that they're wrong. It's just that they're on the virtue signaling side of the issue. We'll have more on this. Stay with me. A lot of people have said to me, well, what do you need to own a weapon like that for? Its only purpose is to kill. I remember after Sandy Hook happened, I said to my wife, I'd gladly give this gun up if it would save the life of just one child. I've decided today I'm going to make sure this weapon will never be able to take a life. Is the right to own this weapon more important than someone's life? A weapon like this that can cause so much death and destruction? I'm going to make sure that will never happen with my weapon. So that was a guy on CBS, and he posted it, and then CBS News shared it, who thinks that the way to keep children safe is for him, an individual, I assume law-abiding gun owner, to take, and he does this on video, to take and saw in half uh, his AR-15. And then says that this means that, the, that you know this weapon will not be used to harm any children. Um, he seems like a well-intentioned guy. I, I you know, I don't mean to, to, to beat up on him, but it's one of the dumber things I've seen in a while. The weapon will only be used to harm somebody if you, as the gun owner, use it to harm somebody, right? And people say, oh, what if it gets stolen from him? Okay, well, he can keep it in a gun safe. But the point is, that it's, we want to talk about virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is, is that, is so powerful 
a psychological phenomenon that it makes lawful gun owners literally saw their guns in half because then they're like a good guy. It's like, you know, now the weapon won't be used. Um, the weapon won't be used against any kids. I mean, I, f- I kind of feel bad. For- I don't know anything about this guy. I just saw the video, but I feel bad for him. It's like, dude, are you really, you really think that that's a useful, I f- you know, that's, that was a nice AR you had. You really had to saw it in half on video? So it won't be used to harm kids? What, what is that? I mean, first of all, there are millions of them. I mean, there's, there, it's, it's dumb on so many levels that it's almost hard to fathom. Why anyone thinks that's a good idea? But then again, I saw some friends over the weekend, and I believe it is kind of a similar thing. I saw some friends over the weekend. I was in Williamsburg, which is the most hipster part of Brooklyn, which if you don't know what a hipster is, I, it's kind of tough to explain. But ask a hipster. They'll tell you there's no such thing as a hipster. Then you know you're talking to one. But I was over there, and, and a, a friend was getting very – she was getting very agitated because they didn't have reusable bags to go to the grocery store and when it was pointed out that the savings from this would only be 10 cents, her response was, but I care about the environment. It's like, so the reusable bag that you're not, that you don't have right now, that is going to be replaced with a couple of paper bags. If you think that that makes a difference to the environment, we really need to have a sit down. We really do. You have a talk. But it's, for, it's you know, if you, it's been so ingrained, right? I don't blame people for thinking this way necessarily because it's so culturally all over the place. You know, that you do these meaningless things that the virtue signalers want you to do, and now all of a sudden you're a good person. By the way, this was even, I meant to play this one before. This is a clip of back to the uh, using kids as attack dogs. I mean, here is actual ch- here are children on CNN being given national airtime to call the NRA child murderers. Because we keep telling them that if they accept this blood money, they are against the children. They are against the people who are dying. And that is that's that there's no other way to put it at this point. You're either funding the killers or you are standing with the children, the children who have no money. We don't have jobs, so we can't pay for your campaign. We would hope that you have the decent morality to support us at this point. And not take money from people that want to keep lessening gun legislation and making it even easier for these horrifying people to get guns. Because if you can't get elected without taking money from child murderers, why are you running? If you can't get elected without taking money from child murderers, folks. Now, these are two kids who don't know anything, who are on TV. They're not well-informed or or. I mean, I'll just say that they're not well informed on the issue. They are very, very obviously and wildly ignorant on the issue of guns. They're making mockeries of their positions by saying things that are so stupid on TV. I don't care about the, the proximity to personal tragedy. That doesn't mean that they get a pass for advocating for a change to what is a constitutional right on national TV. But. That's what CNN is in is in this for. Okay, let, let's put them on TV so they can call people child murderers. I mean, look, you can you know if you want to oppose the NRA, you want to oppose the Second Amendment. That's one thing, but to call a gun rights group child murderers is just too much. It's too far. It's it's not it's not okay. It's not part of civil discourse, and it's moronic. It was a dumb thing to say. And just because CNN is doing the whole let's use victims as attack. 
as attack vessels, it does not mean that it's okay to say dumb things. And this is why a lot of us just look at this whole debate, discussion that happens after school shooting and say, you know what, we're, yeah, we're just going to disengage. It's not, nothing's going to, it's not going to go anywhere. The, the background check system gets stronger. You know what should get stronger? The FBI following up on tip system. That should get stronger. Uh, you know, the background check system, what are they really going to do? Okay, if they want to make it slightly more efficient or something, fine, go for it. But nothing major is going to change. And so what this just turns into, once again, is a an excuse for the left to be particularly nasty to their political opponents. And I, I just get a sense that there was way too much satisfaction at some of the networks, CNN, we just played the audio from it, of using traumatized children as as weapons against their political opponents. To slander them. I mean, to say that the NRA are child murders, that is just slander. It's not even an opinion. It's just a lie. But yeah, put them on TV. Let them make an embarrassment of themselves at this point, because that's really going to bring us together and get us to a, a better place on gun rights and gun control. This is what we're up against in the media, my friends. Coming back with a buck brief. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the buck brief. Cut off from their unit, the tiny band of American soldiers was outnumbered and outgunned in the deserts of Niger, fighting to stay alive under a barrage of gunfire from fighters loyal to the Islamic State. Jogging quickly to a crouch, Staff Sergeant Brian C. Black motioned to the black SUV beside him to keep moving. At the wheel, Staff Sergeant Dustin M. Wright tried to steer while leaning away from the gunfire. But the militants wielding assault rifles and wearing dark scarves and balaclavas kept closing in. Sergeant Black suddenly went down. With one hand, Sergeant Wright dragged his wounded comrade to the precarious shielding of the SUV and took up a defensive position, his M4 carbine braced on his shoulder. Black, yelled a third American soldier, Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Johnson, checking for wounds. Sergeant Black lay on his back, motionless and unresponsive. Cornered, Sergeant Wright and Sergeant Johnson finally took off, sprinting through the desert under a hail of fire. Sergeant Johnson was hit and went down, still alive. At that point, Sergeant Wright stopped running. With only the thorny brush for cover, he turned and fired at the militants who were advancing toward his fallen friend. End quote. That is from a Times... Uh, peace, an endless war, why four soldiers died in a remote African desert. You recall this. It was the ambush that killed four army special forces in Niger, in the western corner of Niger. And people were asking a lot of questions about how could this happen? And you had U.S. senators like Lindsey Graham saying they didn't even know that we had hundreds of soldiers in Niger as part of the war on terror. Uh, This was actually publicized and was out there for anyone who reads the news and had an inclination to know. But now we have more information about that day. We have more information about that ambush in October, which at one point the media was holding up to be Something similar to a Benghazi situation. Backup wasn't called in time. These men were left 
to fend for themselves. What we this was a, a policy error, a chain of command, or all those things. It turns out no, that was not the case. And as I said at the time, these are not diplomats reliant on those around them for protection. These are not IT staffers who got caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. These are elite soldiers of the United States Special Forces. They were in a dangerous country doing a dangerous job. They were ambushed by a vicious enemy, and we lost four of our own. That is what happened. We have additional details now, but that is the short version of the longer story. Um, and there, I have to commend the Times for some very good reporting here on this, uh, including from uh, Rukmini Kalamachi, who does who is the Times' best reporter from what I can see, uh, stretching back now for, for a few years on terrorism-related issues. Here's what we also know. There was a helmet cam, and in fact, footage from the helmet cam has leaked. The Times did not share the helmet cam footage because it shows one of the Special Forces soldiers uh, all the way up to the very end, and the bad guys got four of ours, and they came up close, and they finished them off at close range, which I know it makes me angry just talking to you about it, and I know it makes all of you angry at home as well, but there is video footage of the actual firefight in some detail, and the Times was able to go through it. They got it from an, uh, an affiliate, uh, a, a not, not an, a news affiliate, but actually initially from a news organization in Niger that got it from the jihadists who picked it up off uh, off the battlefield. So that is how it made its way into, and this is a this is a branch of, or these are individuals. The bad guys here uh, are tied to Al Qaeda. Uh, they had sworn allegiance, and they set up an ambush. There was some question initially about why it was that there was a an assault team that was supposed to deploy to get this one uh, time-sensitive target, this high-value target, and this special forces contingent that was traveling with a few dozen Nigerian soldiers that they were training. Uh, these American Green Berets were called to be essentially in the vicinity. So the, the strike team was going to come in from the east of Niger, heavily armored, ready-to-rock strike team, to go after this high-value target. And the high-value target um, wasn't, or rather the strike team was told because of weather, because they're in the desert and you can't fly choppers and all weather conditions, they were told to stand down. But then you already had this contingent of Green Berets with their Nigerian trainees uh, close enough that they could at least go see if they could get eyes on this high-value target. And... That And they showed up, uh, they found a a campsite. It's believed, by the way, that the, that the target was a, a man named uh, Chifu. Um, he was involved in the kidnapping of an American uh, who was reportedly uh, grabbed by jihadists in this region. So you had special forces that were really on a training mission, weren't really on an assault-specific mission at the time, who were brought in to what was supposed to be a secondary role for an assault team that got called off because of weather and dust and uh, it was probably a sandstorm. I, that's That would be my, my guess. 
And so that meant then that they, they had this time-sensitive information on this one jihadist, and they sent these guys looking for him. And then once the smaller secondary team was in a... They, they went to the, a village of Tongo Tongo, which is the one you may have heard about. Uh, they stayed there, and, and there are still some questions about whether the locals there gave information to the and my guess would be yes because they saw some guys on motorbikes disappear very quickly when they arrived whether the head of the village who had them had the special forces tend to some sick children people sometimes forget that's also part of what our green berets do you know a kid is going to die of a preventable infection or green berets will give them antibiotics or take care of them because uh, that's that's who they are and what they do and they they stayed for a bit longer and then when they were leaving the village in a convoy of eight vehicles, but thin-skinned vehicles, so not armored vehicles, uh, they got set upon by 50 or so, 50 to 100, they don't really know, uh, jihadists who were waiting for them right outside the village, set, set up on them. They were in a, an area where they had some, some concealment and some cover, and three or two of the vehicles in the convoy were separated from the rest. And those are the two vehicles that had the four special forces. There are also some Nigerian soldiers were killed as well, but our four special forces soldiers were killed um, when, once they were separated outside the village of Tonga Tonga. They're only about 500 feet from the village, the ambush site. As I said, they've, there's video footage of this. The Pentagon has gone through it, and so we know what happened here. But this is, uh, this is how we lost those four special forces soldiers. There's certainly a policy discussion to be had about whether we should be training forces in places like Niger for part of our counterterrorism mission. Does the AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force, extend to just putting SF, special forces, wherever we think they should be? You know, these are all policy-level questions, but this was not Benghazi. This was we lost four brave soldiers to a vicious enemy in a gunfight, and— this is going to be a risk that we continue to take whenever we have troops deployed overseas in any hostile area. And with that, we're going to roll into a quick break. I'm going to talk to you on the other side about some pop culture stuff, actually. So uh, stay with me. So I don't watch a lot of professional sports. As, as I'm very honest with you guys about that. I just It's not something that's really in my, uh, in my wheelhouse. Uh, I watch football. I've watched a lot over the years, but I'm just... I, I don't have as much time to do these things as I'd like to, I guess. I don't know. Um, I watch football. I watch some tennis. I'll admit it. Soccer, too. Uh, basketball, I used to watch all the time. I actually played basketball growing up. I was a decent uh, two-guard for, you know, grammar school for my, uh, for yeah. Uh, I, I had some handle. I had some moves. It's true, you know. A little, little double pump that would uh, surprise people, come out of nowhere, like, ooh, look at that kid. But I'm, I'm obviously uh, just scraping the bottom end of six feet, and so Miss Molly makes fun of me. She says I'm 5'11 and three quarters, and, uh, if, but I tell her that if I take the poof, you know, if I take the swoop and I just push it up a little bit, it is technically, I am physically actually at six feet. But anyway, it's tough to be, tough to get to a high level of basketball if you're just barely barely in the neighborhood of six feet. I, I do enjoy watching it somewhat. I have not watched a game in a while. I'm a little sad that I didn't watch, though, over the weekend because I would have seen in real time one of the uh, more incredible 
audio atrocities uh, in the sports world in, in recent memory. I mean, it, this is a pretty – this is reminiscent in some ways of, well, actually I can't think of anything that's reminiscent of. I was trying to go for an analogy there. I can't get anything. So there's Fergie uh, of, of the Black Eyed Peas, one of the more annoying and overrated pop groups that I can think of. Uh, I, I I never really liked their music. I always found it kind of annoying. I also thought there was a, a preachiness in some of the the content, if I recall. I, I remember they made some snide comment in one of their songs about the CIA. I want to be like, hey, Ferg, why don't you back off the agency? You know, there's something about the CIA being bad. I forget what. If you if you see if you know what it is, let me know. But so Fergie of Black Eyed Peas fame. Uh, now infamous because of what happened at the NBA All-Star Game. This is not enough for me to describe. We have to share with you some of uh, w- what actually happened so you, we can all appreciate. We can marinate in this. Oh, gosh. Just play it. Can you see the Early light, what so proudly wave at the twilight's last gleaming. It, it gets, it goes on like that. It continues. It was pretty bad. People referred to it as the sound that you would hear if you squashed a duck with a trash can or tried to strangle a goose. Uh, It was not good. It was not good. And and I always wonder why it is that people sometimes... She's obviously got a a very talented, good voice and all that. Uh, Why people decide when there's such a clear mandate to try to be the guy who does the backflip for the first time in the pool in front of everybody else, you know? You know, I, I, I was I was in Aruba uh, not long ago, and we were on, the, there was a boat, and they do this thing where people are, are doing a rope swing off the boat, and, you know, I just, I just went into the water like a normal dude. Some people thought, oh, I'm going to try to do, like, a double backflip off the rope, whatever, and they, like, smacked, like, a, a hippopotamus dropped from 100 feet up the top of the wall, and everyone goes, oh, because it's not the time to get fancy, you know? There's a way to do it. You're singing the national anthem at the NBA All-Star Game. You just need to do what you do. Just sing it. It's the national anthem. People want to hear it the way it's supposed to be sung. Just do it that way. You don't have to, you know? I always remember my my mother, who has a background in, in theater and professional dance, as a professional ballet dancer, actually, at a, at a very high level. And I remember she said that, I forget if it was one of her directors or one of her uh, choreographers would say before she'd go out, and it always stuck with me, I think it's very good advice, don't give me the best performance of your life, just do what you do. Just do what you've been training to do. And it's it's excellent for people to have this in mind for so many things. This is important advice for the toast you're going to give at a wedding. This is important advice, I can tell you, from if you're ever going to be on TV or involved in mass media. Just do what you do. Say what you're there to say. 
Don't don't try to have it be the most profound thing that's ever been said on television. Don't try to go for the one-liner that people will remember throughout the ages. All right, you, you, you're not going to top Molan Labe. It's not going to happen. Like, don't go all in on it. It's also the advice I give people about first days. I've had many first days. First days on jobs. First days in school. First days in you know, assigned to being in foreign countries and everything else, just lots of first days. And I think that one of the more important skills you can have in life is to to deal with the first day and know that you don't want to you don't want to be the guy or the gal that tries to be remembered from the first day. It's almost never good. You know, you don't want to be the one who tries to impress everybody else when the instructor or whomever asks a question, when the professor or the the VP of operations or the new boss or whatever no, just just be there and just do what you're supposed to do and just do your job and just be cool. Act like you've been there before. No matter where you are, act like you've been there before. It's very, very good advice. So do what you train to do and act like you've been there before. Those are the takeaways. And for Fergie at the All-Star Game, she's you know, been at the Super Bowl. She's been ever. It's just I'm using this as a teaching moment, not just to bash Fergie because I don't like the Black Eyed Peas, although... That is a, a fun side effect of all this, because I do think it's really important. It is a lesson. No matter how skilled you are, no matter how much you think you've got this, you want to do what is best under the circumstances. Fulfill the mandate. Do not seek to exceed the mandate of the moment. And for those of you who are going to be giving, I just started going over all these different uh, wedding invitations with Miss Molly because she's now in like prime. All her friends are getting married now. All the oh yeah, it's New York City. People are starting to turn thirty, and it's just like boom, 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 bang, boom, boom. I mean, just left and right. Everyone's everyone's getting married, and uh, we're looking at all these different weddings. Which you can imagine, also obviously, is you know, there's there's that too. The, the whole everyone else is getting married thing. So don't worry, don't worry. It's you, you guys will be among the first to know. I'll tell you that. Team Buck, you'll be among the first to know. Uh, but anyway, we're talking about weddings. Wedding toasts. Shorter is always better. Short and sweet. Get right to it. Don't try to be a hero. Don't try to be a superstar. <laughs> to, if you've written out the toast, just stay with what you've written. If you think it's too long, it is. If you think people aren't going to get your joke, they won't. <laughs> just keep it, keep it right there. It's kind of like the movie Hitch, where he tells him where you're dancing, and it's like a home base, and he's just basically like moving side to side with the music. Important lesson for life. Just just stay at home base. Stay at home base. You'll know when it's time. You'll know when it's time to do the backflip. You'll know when it's time to give the, uh, the funeral oration by Pericles. You know, you'll know when it's your moment to shine and to show everybody what you're made of. But when it's not that moment, don't try. <laughs> and if you're Fergie and you have the opportunity at the, at the NBA All-Star Game to sing the national anthem, just sing it. Don't try to basically rewrite it. Don't be weird. Just do what you do. Do what you've trained to do. Do what the moment calls for and be happy with a job well done uh, and act as if you've been there before. A lot of wisdom in one segment, folks. But that's why you come here to the hut so that we can uh, exchange thoughts and wisdom. We'll be back with much more. Have we gone from confronting white privilege to an actual indoctrination process of apologizing for whiteness? 
Both of these are concepts that you'll hear bandied about. People will talk about white privilege as though it's a real thing. And they will talk about the need to apologize for what white privilege means in day-to-day life for people all across the country and and around the world. And you're seeing a a proliferation of of this. And it's, from what I see, influencing a lot of the culture. You know, there was a, a clip, and this was, by the way, not in the aftermath of what's happened in the in last week. And so I, I don't want to take this out of uh, historical context, but it just it was getting some play and it made me think a little bit about this. This is comedian Chris Rock back in November. And this is on one of his comedy sets, what he had to say about, well, I'll let you hear it for yourself. I want to live in a world with real equality. I want to see white mothers on TV crying. You notice the crowd's laughing. Now, like I said, that was back in November. This is not in response to what happened last week, but I did see it over the weekend as I was reading on some other topics. And it just got me thinking, at at what point have we crossed a line where there is clearly an anti-white animus that has infected parts of our culture, our American culture? At, At what point are we at a place where it is clear that we're not just talking about a history of oppression or discussing race relations, but in fact, there is a clear attack being made on the notion of whiteness and therefore white white people. When does that now you could say, okay, Chris Rock, that was just that was just comedy, not funny in poor taste. I've always thought he was overrated. Uh, I won't say that he's not funny. He's actually been, I've seen some sets where he's been quite funny, unlike Amy Schumer, who is never funny, or Sarah Silverman, who is just never funny. How these uh, comedians are called comedians is is beyond me because there's nothing funny about them. Chris Rock actually has talent and, and is, it is funny sometimes. Uh, but obviously what he said there was was really disconcerting. And, if, and you'll note that we could play this game with any number of things. If you had changed white to any other race in that little mon- or little speech that he played, I was going to say monologue, that little excerpt, uh, it would be completely unacceptable and people would be calling for him to be banished from the public square and not allowed to do the next comedy show, he'd have to apologize, all, all that stuff that you see. But making jokes about wanting to see white mothers crying on TV because white kids get shot, that gets laughs from the crowd. That's funny. Hmm. I think it's worth exploring that psychology a little bit because it's not just an isolated incident that I'm pointing to there. This is happening in so many different parts of the culture. It's happening with the academy. This apologizing for whiteness, confronting whiteness. Uh, I I will note that, you know, you often will hear from some of the social justice warriors that race is a construct. Race doesn't really exist. Uh, Race in within any race you can mention, there's so many different uh, kinds of of individuals from places, you know, far meaning that, you know, when you say Asian, what does that even mean? They'll say, what does that mean? And, And it's a fair point. Is it somebody from Bangladesh? Is it somebody from South Korea? Is it somebody from Kazakhstan? Right. What's Asia? 
Asia is almost a it's it's a landmass term, but to say someone is Asian is a, a kind of meaningless term as race goes. But you'll notice with white, that's not white is is a different kind of social construct. White is to be used all the time, such that if you are an Anglo-Saxon in this country who's been in the country for hundreds of years, you know you're, you're the same as a recent Albanian immigrant without a penny to his name. You know it's it's all the same. It's just white. It's all the same. Oh. Okay, no differentiation made within that. Uh, But colleges are now teaching kids, teaching young adults, I should say, that they should confront whiteness. And what I see happening is, how do you confront whiteness without automatically also, as part of that process, starting to feel some antagonism towards some some problem with those who are benefiting from this so-called white privilege colleges like yale university are teaching about this this was just today on on the drudge report which is another reason got me thinking about it there's a course that looks at whiteness as culturally constructed and an economically incorporated entity this is a yale university course yale is one of the most elite universities in the country. I don't know if that doesn't really mean very much anymore because universities play all these social justice games. You can go to any one of these schools and not be smart and not actually be intellectually impressive or impressive really in any way. I know people, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, I know them personally who are not idiots, that would be unfair, but who are sub... sub, the mean, sub-average American intelligence, but they go to these places because they, yes, because sometimes they play the right sport, because sometimes they play the right instrument, because sometimes they come from the background that the school just wants to admit, whatever that may be, and academics has very little to do with it sometimes. So these schools have all been diluting their brand, which was supposed to be academic excellence. They've been putting that aside. And now you're seeing that they're offering classes that are just straight up indoctrination of social justice ideology. I mean, a course that confronts, quote, whiteness, white imagination, white property and white speech. There's no way that you can separate particularly college age students in this manner and create these contra- constructs and and give lectures on these topics without also i would argue and i am arguing it without also essentially training people to have a bias to suggest that somebody has benefited in everything they do in their whole life from their skin color is also to inherently suggest that there's something unfair and that, that person has some explaining to do has some penitence to engage in uh, has some reparations to think about and that's where things start to get really problematic this has been an explosion in the last year or so of these college campuses that are teaching classes on quote white racism they're, they're teaching classes on white racism they call there are all these variations on the theme white privilege white authority Uh, whiteness all this but students that go to these classes they are being taught by professors things that one are are untrue and two are damaging to relations within the country going forward 
right? No one wants to sit there in a classroom and hear about how because of their skin color, they have gotten further in life than they would have otherwise, right? No, nobody wants to hear that. White people don't want to hear that either. Nobody wants to hear that. And it's unfair. It's based upon unfair judgments. And I, I, I hesitate, you know, President Obama's usage of the word fair has now meant that fair is such a, uh, a term that is appropriated by the social justice left, right? Fair is whatever they say it is, but it's not rational. It's not sound to take this approach. It's not based in logic and reason that you can judge somebody based on their skin color. We seem to have gotten to a point where overwhelmingly the country understands that skin color is not it, it does not determine character, does not determine intellect, does not determine any of these things. And that those who try to argue otherwise are resoundingly uh, defeated and, and really pummeled in the public square. They're allowed to raise their points of, uh, of racism when they want to, right? Because we have a First Amendment, but they are defeated. Except in the, in the case of whiteness, you can say that white people don't deserve what they get. White people are, oppress, are oppressors. White people have done all these bad things. And you're also not really allowed to respond to that. Like, what does this even mean? What does it mean to talk about white privilege and white speech? You also get to a point where you wonder, is the only racism that exists white racism? That's a much more provocative question than it should be, right? Racism actually goes far back, far earlier uh, than the founding of America, there has been racism in societies for as long as there have been societies. People have made judgments about one another based upon superficial characteristics. But yet today in America, we'll be told that, and you will hear people say that only white people are capable of racism. That's always interesting when you have, for example, a group of MS-13 gangbangers who are saying horrifically racist thing about black, uh, racist things about black people in their neighborhoods in Los Angeles. The social justice warriors, and this is a thing that happens, by the way, don't know how to compute that. You know, well, what do we, is that racism or is that just, you know, wor- working out sociological differences in an urban environment that they can't, no, it's racism. Of course it's racism, but it's not white racism per se. So they don't like to focus on that. They don't certainly teach about that. I've discussed before on the show, though probably not uh, recently enough for many of you to uh, recall it that there there is a racism example racism exists in south asia specifically i know about this from friends of mine who are south asian and meaning that there's a, a spectrum within within a society that we would think of as generally being ethnically similar but actually lightness versus darkness of skin color within the indian subcontinent is a cause of a lot of uh racial Racial tensions, racial decision making. It's a, there's a racialized component of that society within the society. They're all South Asian. We're talking right here. But how dark you are has socioeconomic implications. People make make people make uh, judgments based about or, or judgments about your background and schooling and so. And I could, and people will be sending me emails and I appreciate them. But they'll say, oh, but also this country and this country and this country. Lightness and darkness, this exists all over the world. But now you've got schools, one after another, they're teaching courses on white racism without any of this context, without any of this history. 
And what they're really just doing is stirring up racial animus in, in young people that are going to go out into the broader society. You're going to have white kids that feel like they have something to be sorry for. And that's, that is a fallacy. You, you cannot be sorry for something that you had no judgment or ability in doing, right? If you, if you had no role in something, you cannot be sorry for it because you are not a moral agent in that. And you have other people who are going to say, well, you know, look at all this, all this white privilege that's out there. I'm owed something. They owe me something. There must be recompense made for this. I must be, you know, I must be made whole for all of the hurdles that I have had to jump over because of white racism. This is, this is m- much more out in the open, much more widespread in recent years than it ever has been before. I mean, I blame the Academy a lot for it, but... Keep an eye on this. Newsweek just wrote this story. White racism becoming a popular class at campuses across the nation. That was just a few months, a couple of mo- few months ago. Uh, and it is happening. So something that just something that struck me that I wanted to talk to you about. All right. We're going to uh, hit a quick break. We'll be back with much more team. Stay with me. This is a town run by lobbyists, for, for better or worse, right? And there's millions upon millions of dollars poured into this around the gun lobby, which explains a lot of why nothing happens. The problem has been suburban moms, right? This not, has not been a central voting issue for them the way it has been for a lot of our voters in, in the rural areas. For them, health care affordability. Sure. Education issues have been front and center for, for their voting. I think this is changing, Chuck. When, when suburban white moms are as fearful and afraid of their kids coming home, as urban moms are, they change Congress. So that was a pollster, Cornell Belcher, who was on MSNBC. When white moms are as afraid as urban moms, they they change Congress. I, you know, the, it's I suppose not surprising at all. And I wasn't even thinking about talking about this after my other my previous discussion with you about uh, these classes on white racism at all these schools across the country. But Cornell. Uh, Belcher here, looking at school shootings as an issue that touches on race. I mean, this is you see this at MSNBC with with every issue, with every issue that exists. They they view it. There's always a racial lens that they seem able to find for it. MSNBC is race obsessed and oh, with with a very one sided narrative of all of it. Right? There's never any attempt at even handedness and. Same thing at CNN. I mean, I remember, oh, they were just running with the Black Lives Matter protests and it was getting them good ratings at the time. And the more that they could promote the notion of racist killer cops, you'll notice what happened with all those with all the racist killer cops. We were hearing about them for years under the Obama administration. Where did they all go? I all of a sudden we don't really hear about it anymore. It's almost like the media just pulled that together. And that was a storyline that they wanted us to have to endure day in and day day out. And then it appeals for some reason to their base. And so they conjured this narrative of racist killer cops. Some of you have been sending me that, you know, George Soros and the and the Open Society Foundation was funding organizations that were involved in the Ferguson protests, were involved in Black Lives Matter. And that's certainly true as well. I've been to a lot of these different social justice warrior protests out there, and I always know they'll have you know workers of the workers of the world or World Workers Party rather. They have the same signs at rally after rally. It's very clear that there's some external 
hand, and in this case, external checkbook that's involved in a lot of that. Uh, but you know, we've been discussing a lot about uh, we're discussing a lot about what is a good response to the, the school shooting that had happened there. And I, I find it uh, disconcerting, but yet another symptom of what I was just talking to you about, that even even school shootings can f- fall into this context of, well, if, if white moms care, then things will change. That's what that's what this MSNBC analyst said. If white moms care, then, then they will change things. And if they care because they're scared. Uh, you know, we want all kids in this country to be safe, regardless of color, creed, background. We want them all to be safe. There's no one who's sitting around saying, well, you know, I don't care about a shooting in this place or that place at a school because it didn't affect my group or people of my background. I mean, there's no reasonable, ethical, moral, decent human being that takes that position. Ninety nine percent of the American people just want this to stop. And yet it is another opportunity here, another opportunity to put it into a. Uh, a racial framework, and I, I just find it so troubling and so tiresome. And it's one thing about the Trump administration, I'll just say, that, you know, at least we, we don't have to hear it from the president. And I would note, if Hillary were the president, you'd be hearing all the social justice warrior stuff. Oh, Hillary, who is the, the quintessential, uh, untalented, grasping, opportunistic left-wing baby boomer, I'll just say it, Hillary would be going on national TV giving lectures on white privilege. Promise you. She'd be talking about confronting white privilege. Plays well with the base, plays well with minorities. She knows this. So that's what that's what we would have had, you know. Confront it! I mean, she would have been out there doing everything that she could to further that narrative. So it's yet another reason why I say... Trump has exceeded, has exceeded expectations for me. At least we don't have to hear from the president from that pulpit. We don't have to be harangued. We don't have to be lectured by the commander-in-chief about white privilege and whiteness, especially when the commander-in-chief in the case of someone like Hillary Clinton, you know, spends a lot of time in the most, you know, racially homogenous enclaves in the country, you know, is, is quite fond of making sure she's only seen or she likes to be in the, the richest part of Chappaqua, New York, which is a very ritzy suburb, likes to be in the richest parts of New York City, Martha's Vineyard, you know, not exactly a woman of the people, but we would be getting the lectures on it. Nonetheless, not, nothing is allowed to escape the left's racial obsession. Um. I want to change topics and just get into yoga pants and sweatpants coming up. So that's going to be different, and you're going to want to hear it. Stay with me. Now, I am not somebody who knows fashion. Um, Miss Molly works in fashion, so she is actually quite fashionable and sometimes tells me things like your, your, your boat shoes on TV, while you think they're uh, whimsical and certainly comfortable, uh, make the rest of your outfit look less less serious, for example. Hence why I don't go on TV in prime time now in front of millions of people with ratty boat shoes on and a decent suit, but still ratty boat shoes. Uh, I have learned some things. She has taught me things. Also, wearing like colorful socks with, you know, little, little pink elephants on them or something uh, is not, in fact... A way of showing just how offbeat and, and hip you are. It just looks like you've got weird socks on, she has explained to me. So I'm learning things. I'm, I'm learning things, uh, which, which has been very good. So I do not pretend to be an expert in fashion. That said, 
this is quite a this is quite a statement about fashion statements. This was in the New York Times. Why yoga pants are bad for yoga class. Also titled that was in the tw- in the tweet. Why yoga pants are bad for women. Um, now look, I- I'm not a, like I said. I'm not a fashion critic here. I do find it though interesting that here we are now being told that yoga pants are are essentially part of the patriarchy is what this is really saying. Let me give you some of the analysis here and you can make of it make of it what you will. Quote, it's a new year and I've got a new gym membership. I went the other morning, it was 8 degrees outside and every woman in there was wearing skin tight saran wrap thin yoga pants. Many were dressed in the latest fashion, leggings with patterns of translucent mesh cut out of them like sporty doilies. Finally, these women must have thought, pants that properly ventilate my outer calves without letting a single molecule of air reach anywhere below my belly button. Don't get me wrong, I have yoga pants, three pairs, but for some reason none of them cover my ankles, and as I said, it was eight degrees outside, so I wore sweatpants. I got on the elliptical, a few women gave me funny looks. Maybe they felt sorry for me, or maybe they were concerned that my loose pants were going to get tangled in the machine's gears. Men didn't look at me at all. At this moment of cultural crisis, when the injustices and indignities of, indignities of female life have suddenly become news, an important question hit me. Whatever happened to sweatpants? Now, you know, I'm of two minds here. To me, the notion that you should be opposed to yoga pants and yoga class seems a bit strange, right? This is almost like writing an article that's because the reason that they uh, fit the way that they do is because of the kinds of movements. And if you've got baggy clothing on and you're trying to do some of the things that I have almost had a heart attack doing in the several yoga classes that I have taken, that fabric's going to get in the way. That fabric's going to get in the way. So yoga pants exist for a reason. It's it's almost like saying, why do people who show up and want to be competitive swimmers, why don't they wear a burqa? Because it would it would you know they wouldn't have any body consciousness issues. Well, just based on my experience having seen burqas out there and about, uh, if they got wet, I feel like there'd be considerable drag issues, and that would slow down the speed of the swimmer. Same could be said for yoga pants with the positions. There's a reason. It it is a functionality issue. It is not, in fact, an oppression issue. It's not about body shaming. And also from the yoga classes that I've been in, there are people of all shapes and sizes. It's not like going into a CrossFit class, which I have also done, where it's like if you don't have abs yet, you should probably stay out of sight and in the corner learn something, son, because you best have really more like an eight-pack. A six-pack is kind of... That's that's not sufficient. Yoga is much more inclusive and, and fine. So I think it's a little bit strange that we're now seeing a movement against yoga pants because it exists for the purpose of being in that specific class. And, you know, there there are there are, in fact, male yoga pants, too. They're all, they're not quite as form fitting, but they're actually rather snug. They're rather snug. I, I may have been I may have been given a pair once. I'm not saying I wear it a lot, but I'm familiar with with yoga pants for men. I know. I know. Guys, I'm not coming in here in yoga pants. But then she brings up sweatpants, which I have to say, I I do feel like get kind of a bad rap. I'm very pro sweatpants. The guys in here right now will tell you I, in fact, have several pairs of spare sweats that I keep in the radio studio. 
in case, you know, I, I really need to get comfy. Sometimes I wander in here wearing a suit after numerous appearances on television, and I, I maybe smell like a mobile septic tank. I mean, it's not a great... The, the odor of being in a suit under hot lights over the course of a day is not... I feel like I'm not really selling myself that well here. This is not working out the way I thought. Nonetheless... I keep sweats handy because I think that they are, in fact, quite comfy, and I am, I am a fan. And when I'm home, I wear sweatpants. I just wish that they were considered to be a little more fashionable. I have on occasion tried to sneak out to, say, a lunch with friends with Miss Molly, and she has said things like, you are not going to the corner to get some milk. We are seeing people change out of your sweatpants. And I know she's right, but it makes me, it, it makes me aggravated that that's the case. We should all be in a place where sweatpants are more acceptable outside attire. Like if I show up to any kind of work-related meeting wearing jeans, that may be okay, especially if it's jeans and a sport coat. That's totally allowable. If I show up wearing sweatpants and a Xenia suit and a, and a Brioni $300 tie or something, they're still like, you're not, we're not working with you. You're not getting the job. Get out of here. It doesn't matter. I could have on the most the fanciest of the fanciest of shoes and the most uh, the most luxurious of men's suits. If if you got sweatpants on, you're pretty much donezo. It's the end of the meeting. It's the end of any any chance you have of uh, seeming like you're a person with with a job. You kind of give off a vibe for those of you who are familiar with the Big Lebowski, similar to the dude. You know, he he's all about, well, he wears shorts actually a lot, see, which I will, I, I do remember a story about a place where I may have worked where somebody showed up on an off day to pick up paperwork to start the job at the NYPD and a very senior person saw them in shorts in the building and they withdrew the offer. That was the story. I don't know if it's true, but it sounded true to me because they were... Some of the senior folks there were very into protocol, and they're like, you do not show up into one police plaza wearing shorts if you plan on working here. So, you know, shorts, I, I understand. One day I'll be bold enough to go on. I actually just saw a, a fox, he will remain nameless, a fox anchor on the subway on my way into work just now. And, and we were talking about it because he saw me, and he's like, you're wearing, you know, jeans and a fleece, you know, as one does. And, and I was like, yeah, man, you know, one day I'll be cool enough where I can wear sweatpants and then like a suit top and go into Fox and nobody will care. And he, we're like, nah, the real the real players go with shorts with a suit up top and do national TV, hoping that the lower lower portion does not get caught on camera. So that's my yoga pants slash sweatpants rant for the day. Happy President's Day, everybody. We'll be right back. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you've had a fun president's day here in the freedom hut i hope i hope you've enjoyed our show it's fun that we actually were here together i some people take off on president's day and i'm here to tell you i don't really think president's day is a real holiday i just don't i'm sorry i don't know why we have a day where we're supposed to think about elected representatives present or past or maybe even future in this country i know it was all about george washington initially right that's the they teach you this stuff and Social studies in the fourth or fifth grade. By the way, is social studies still what they call it? Did you guys ever have social studies class? Is that just a thing in elementary school because they don't really know what to call it? You know, it's it's like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Anyway, I remember learning about it and 
President's Day, it, it's kind of a who cares holiday. And uh, that's why I'm here doing my work, doing my thing. And I hope if you had off, I hope you had a great time. If you had to work like me, well, then obviously our work ethic is uh, exemplary for the rest of, of, of the country. So there you have it. Uh, but I'm glad that you got a chance to hang out with me. I would just say that uh, I did check out over the weekend, and this was a suggestion from the team. I've had two, no, actually three Netflix suggestions for shows to check out based on what comes into the Freedom Hut inbox here. One was The Crown, which was delightful. I'm like four episodes into it. You're not, Mike and Mike and John in here are not going to be all about The Crown. Longmire, which is kind of like Walker, Texas Ranger in Wyoming. So think of it like Longmire, Wyoming Ranger, but he's actually a sheriff. But it's the same general idea. But it's a pretty well done show. I, I like it. I mean, I've never seen a... I think it's a little unlikely that you'd have a sheriff in a small town in Wyoming get into quite so many gunfights with guys with automatic weapons, but I haven't spent much time in Wyoming, so there's that. And then I also uh, gave a shot to Ozark, which, yes, thumbs up. If you're if you're a fan of the uh, Breaking Bad genre of TV shows... Ozark, I think you're really going to like it. It's very well done. It's it's tense. It's well-paced. I'm three episodes in, and so far I've got a lot of positive things to say about it. So that that would be what I've got for you right off the bat for the weekend, putting out some putting out some uh, Netflix recs for you because I, I bring it all to the table. All right, we've got oh, – oh, wait. Uh, can we do the – yes, please. You know what's coming. Oh, yeah. Team Buck. It's time for Roll Call. It feels a little extra patriotic because it's President's Day. Can we all disagree that President's Day is like not a great... Can we just call it like George Washington was awesome and, and Abraham Lincoln was Amazing Day or something? And why, why just call it President's Day? People were sharing this, uh, this, this poll about the best and worst presidents. I know I said I get to Roll Call. I'll get to that in one second. But here's what it I don't even know what this was based on. It was a presidential greatness survey. Did you see this? It was making the rounds today. I know I need to talk into the microphone. This is it's like I'm a professional radio host. I should start doing that. Top 10 uh, Lincoln. This is the 10 best presidents of all time, according to a survey that I was seeing a lot of people sharing. Is it scientific? No, but it's the end of the show. So who cares? Uh, we've got top 10 here. Lincoln is number one. Some of my friends would disagree with that one greatly, but that's a discussion for another time. Uh, number two is Washington. I think that's a pretty standard. I think a lot of folks would say Washington should be number one, though. Number three, FDR. Whoa, settle down. You'd have a little talk about that one. Four, Teddy Roosevelt. Five, Jefferson. I mean, the two Roosevelts ahead of Thomas Jefferson? crazy world we live in six truman seven eisenhower i think most people can't tell the difference like they they're like eisenhower truman truman eisenhower they, they just know they're both like kind of good presidents that were well respected by both sides what they do you know some stuff some things it was like the 1940s 1950s ish uh number eight on this list is obama which lets you know that it's obviously this is fake news this is a bad list number nine is reagan should clearly be in the top three. And number 10 is LBJ, because some people just don't read history books, from what I understand. And then the bottom five were uh, were Pierce, uh, Harrison, Johnson, Buchanan, 
and Trump. So this uh, this must have been a survey on like Slate.com, TheNation.com, IHateAmerica.com, one of those Democrat-friendly websites out there. Uh, but I just wanted th- this was out. This was yeah. Maybe we could put a little poll on on uh, our own. We could put a little poll up on Facebook or something. So with that, on to roll call, which I know we said we were doing, and I got diverted, but that just happens sometimes. So we have Chris writing, Buck, we have a house, in, a lake house in Kentucky. Well, hello, Chris. Fancy. We spent the last week in there, and on Friday, noticed a bunch of TV station vehicles in our very rural neighborhood. One of the reporters actually asked my wife and asked if she would make a statement. Turns out the 15-year-old shooter in Benton, Kentucky last month lived in the house next door. The ironies, the shooter's mother is a journalist and found out about her son as she rushed to cover the shooting. Now she is in hiding while the media vultures swarm the hood looking for blood. I have mixed feelings. It must be devastating for her and her family. But she would have been dumpster diving for a juicy story had it not been for her son. Hard lesson in humanity. Wow, that's quite a story, Chris. I actually, did you guys know about this Kentucky shooting? You, yeah. Some of them, I, I get I get them, uh, you know, there's been a few of them, and the details are not always at my grasp. Um, next up here, so Chris, thank you for sharing that story. Um, Shayna, next up here. It'll be very easy to use facial recognition software that has anyone that is enrolled in school or faculty programmed with double security doors, something that would just lock if you weren't pre-programmed on the system and trap the person between the two security doors in regards to school shootings, this is. We have kids and thought it should at least be part of the discussion. Well, Shanna, I I give you uh, total credit for trying to come up with something that would actually help, right? Something that would be useful for schools to secure children. Um, I will tell you that from my time at the NYPD, they had thumbprint scanners at the front, and those things never worked. I mean, I, I'm, I can't tell you how many man hours I probably had to build the city of New York for standing in one police plaza, which is the main police headquarters in New York City, trying to get the thumbprint to work. It just didn't work. And I wasn't the only one. Everyone's trying to get in. Co- creates congestion. These technologies are out there, but they're not foolproof and they're not great and they're also expensive. So I would just wonder how good a and what would be the cost of installing a facial recognition software in over uh you know over a hundred thousand schools so your idea is a a helpful addition to the conversation i don't know how feasible it is once you actually put it into practice but then again i also don't know i'm not a facial recognition expert but thank you very much for uh sending in your thoughts um someone wrote in hey no need to read on air whoops okay well then i won't I will not. If you tell me not to read it on air, I will not. Notice I didn't even didn't even use the name. Just letting you guys know, if you tell me up front, because I'm reading these in real time, you got to tell me, don't read this on air, and then it stays between you, me, and, and the team, because just so you all know, Mike and John have access to the, the, face, I mean, the Freedom Hut Facebook inbox as well. Uh, Mark, next one up. Love your work, Buck. Thank you. See, Mark is obviously a man of excellent taste. Longtime listener. I used to write for NRO, the Washington Times, and some other outlets, and once in a while I get the urge to poke my nose in things, and this Russia collusion lie stinks to the heavens. This morning I was more angry about it than usual and did some digging and got contact info for Mueller's team, 
and sent him quite an email, and they replied. Dude, Mark, you got, that's it? You're leaving me hanging with that? You tell me they replied, you get nothing? Mark, you got to send me another note here with what they, how they replied to you. I'm very, I'm very curious. Even if it's a form letter, I would want to see what it is. Michael writes in next with, oh, time to kick these blanking Islamist blankers, uh, Blank, blank. Okay. You know what, Michael? We're going to keep this one off. <laughs> We're going to say, this is going to be just for the team in here. We're not going to share this one on air. But uh, sentiments appreciated, sir. Next one up. Uh, oh, wow. Actually, you know what? I can't do a next one up because we're pretty much at showtime here. So I am going to ask that you all please do check out facebook.com slash buck sexton if you're not already following me there please do you can also send thoughts to official team buck at gmail.com tomorrow journalists will be back at work uh, so that means that there'll be more things that they're talking about so we'll have quite a news cycle to look forward to i am sure until then no matter what comes your way you know shields high